Father God, I thank you for this space, and I thank you for being in this space. And I, today we're potentially tackling a topic that is a major hurdle for a lot of us. And so uh, I pray that uh, these words would be yours and not mine, and I pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people this morning. So bless this time in your name I pray, amen. So we're in this uh, series on forgiveness, and this morning we're just gonna jump into the story of a man. He was actually a king, and he'd been blessed with a lot, like a lot, a lot. God had brought him far, and his, he was living in his palace at this time, and there was a lot of peace, and his, his army was actually away at war, but he was home, and he went out onto the terrace of his palace and looked over all that he had, looked over all that God had given him. And he looks down, and in an adjacent home from his palace, he sees uh, a woman bathing. And in this moment, he has a decision to make. And in that moment, this, the decision that he makes is that he, he summons her to his palace and he has an affair. And he has an affair with not just any woman, but the husband of this woman uh, is the wife of one of his major commanders, one of his chief commanders that is away at, in, in, in battle right now. And so what he thinks up, because he's in the midst of this sin, right, to, to cover his sin, to cover the thing he's done, is, is, he, is he brings that commander back home and he says, you've been, you've been fighting valiantly, why don't you spend some time at home, stay with your wife, to cover up that she is now pregnant. But he is so faithful to the king and he's so faithful to the men that are off currently fighting, he says, if my men don't have this, I, I, I can't also... I, I can't do this as well. So he sleeps on the door of his house, which doesn't help this king's current predicament of trying to cover the pregnancy of this affair. And so what this king does is he sends this chief back into battle and he, and he sends a letter to another chief and he says, I want you to go into battle and at the last moment, I want you to bring everyone back, essentially leaving this chief commander out to die. That is in scripture. You don't need to go to Barnes and Noble for drama. It is in here. What a mess this king has made. This is not fiction. This is King David's story. This is a real story. You could go read this story and I encourage you to do so in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But look at the mess that this man has made. And it's out of this story this morning that we are gonna see what it looks like to receive God's forgiveness. Like how does someone who walks through something like that receive God's forgiveness, shed guilt and shame and find freedom? David was forgiven. He was set free of guilt and shame. And this is a problem, honestly, that many Christians face today. Like, Brody, I don't know how to receive God's forgiveness. Like, if you only knew either the things I've done or the sins that I'm caught up in right now or the thoughts that are running through my mind, if you only knew, you'd, you'd be in my same shoes. You, I don't know how, how to receive God's forgiveness. Or better yet, some of us are at a place where we could say, yeah, Brody, I have, I have asked God for forgiveness, but I don't feel forgiven. Or I have asked God for forgiveness, but I don't know how to forgive myself. Maybe you're carrying that today. You're like, I, <laughs> I'm so broken. I'm so lost. I don't even know what it looks like 
to receive God's forgiveness and be forgiven, let alone forgive myself. And so let me just say, if you're in this space, if you're in that place, that is a lonely, shame-riddled, exhausting place to be. And I sympathize with you if you're in that. But let's get you out of that lie this morning, yeah? Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession. After this moment, this, this priest, Nathan, came, comes to him and he convicts him of his sin. He makes him, he makes him draw back from everything he's in and he, and he helps David realize the mess he's made, the sins he's committed and where he currently finds himself. And so Psalm 51 is, is David's prayer to God. Like what does David do in response to what he's done to receive forgiveness from God and find freedom. And so we're going to spend our time in Psalm 51 today. This is a big topic in, within the realm of forgiveness. And so this morning I want to cover three primary components of what does it look like to receive God's forgiveness. There's two things that you and I, me too, that you and I must do. And then there's one thing that we must receive. Of the two things that we must do, I'm going to spend more time extrapolating on the second one. So let's, let's jump into David's prayer. If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 51, you can do so. Otherwise, these words will be on the screen. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. That word iniquity just means guilt. Wash away all of my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions or my wrongdoings. Uh, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before, you, before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The first thing that we see David do on this walk of receiving God's forgiveness is he confesses his sin. The opening line of his prayer is, have mercy on me, O God. He outs himself, right? The only reason you would ask God to have mercy on you is if you did something that required you to receive mercy. He says, I know my transgressions, my wrongdoings, and my sin is always before me. You see, confession is admitting to the crime that you committed. That's what confession is. And this is the most, com like the most common, the most widely understood component of forgiveness. And, and that's important. It is. It's extremely biblical. Uh, we see David do it here. If you had a Catholic upbringing, the process of going to the church and, and going to confession is something that's maybe familiar to you. It comes up also in James chapter 5. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confession is what brings healing. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It is clearly stated by God that this is a practice that as believers, you and I must regularly partake in. We are sinners. You are a sinner. You are broken. You're going to mess up. But that's also okay because our God is bigger than your sin. 
On the topic of verbal confession, C.S. Lewis once said, there is a gain in self-knowledge from confession. Most of us have, have never really faced the facts about ourselves until we have uttered them aloud in plain words, calling a spade a spade. I certainly feel I have profited enormously from the practice. Naming sin is a powerful practice. Receiving God's forgiveness, a part of that journey. If you want to experience that truth, this has to be a part of that walk. You have to come to grips with the thing that you've done and name it before God. And so my question, one of my questions for you this morning is when was the last time that you took the time to confess? When was the last time that you willfully pulled back the curtain of your life and exposed it to God. It's not that he hasn't seen it already, but there is, there is healing in us willingly pulling back that curtain, saying, God, I, I, I admit the wrong. I see the wrong that I have done. He promises healing and great healing when we do this. And so the first thing we see David do that we must do to receive God's forgiveness is confess our sin. The second thing that we see David do in the midst of his mess is he repents. He repents of his sin. And this is where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning because this is where we tend to trip up. This is kind of where we tend to, if this is the path of repentance, start to veer off into something that isn't truly repentance. But repentance is the process we take, it's the path we walk, it's the action step that we tread on as a result of our belief that we have been forgiven. When true confession and repentance collide, this is when we experience the shedding of the guilt, the relief of shame that we so desperately desire that can get us through any and every mess that we find ourselves in. It doesn't, it's, I'm not saying we're gonna clear up the earthly mess that we've made, but the guilt and shame that you carry, you can deal away with. That can be gone. And you can walk anew. And that's what we're after here this morning. And so quickly, what is repentance? Repentance is acknowledging what we did is wrong. And then therefore, I resol my resolve is to change the way that I was living and live in the opposite direction. The Greek term of, uh, of repentance literally has a connotation of a 180 degree change. Like the repentance is, God, I realized that in walking this way, it led me towards sin and something that you called me to. And because I realized this sin, that, that walking this way was sinful, I am going to turn around and walk completely in the opposite direction. It is the action step to the receiving of your forgiveness. Repentance is pretty straightforward, but because we live in a sinful, fallen world, that we, because we have a sinful nature, we can begin to twist just a little bit what repentance is is into something that it's not. Like we'll walk paths that may feel like repentance, that if, if I journey on this passage eventually, I will feel that guilt and shame begin to lift, but that is not true. That is not the case. I wanna illuminate the worn roads that we thought to be what a repentant road is and instead use David's prayer as a way to point us down the path of true Repentance. Does that sound good? Cool. The first thing that we see David do 
in these verses that we just read is he takes full responsibility for his sins. In verse three, it says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In these verses, you see no motive of David trying to deflect blame or trying to deflect his sin or justify the sins he has committed. He says, I know my sins. Not, I know I sinned, but she made it really hard not to. Or, I know I sinned, but she's the one that bathed with her, with her, with her curtain open. Nor does he blame God. I know I sinned, but why did you let me go out onto the palace terrace and look down and see this? Like he doesn't put blame on God. No, a truly repentant heart, first and foremost, takes full responsibility of the sin it's committed. The first counterfeit of repentance that we tend to walk in relation to full responsibility is blame shifting. It's making excuses for our sin. Our attempt at repentance of shedding the guilt, instead of walking and taking full responsibility, we try to shift it onto someone else. And this can manifest in many different ways. The first way we can do this is we justify our sin. I'm not proud. I'm just assertive. Or I don't, I don't drink too much. I'm just the life of the party, dog. I'm not abrasive. I just tell it the way it is. It's, it's your fault that, that, that you responded the way you did. Or we shift responsibility. Well, I wouldn't have had an affair if you would have been a better spouse. I shouldn't have said that, but you provoked me. You started it. We also, this also can manifest in insisting that an accuser is exaggerating. Okay, I was wrong, but you're being too sensitive. I came off a little harsh. I did, I did, but, but you're overreacting right now to my sin. Do you see how that's not taking responsibility, just straight responsibility for what you and I do? Do you see how that attempts to relieve ourselves of the sh shame and guilt, but it doesn't work? We have a repentant heart and we take full responsibility of our sin, not blame shifting on anyone else. This is what will begin to lead to freedom. Timothy Keller says, here is the language of a repentant heart. Yes, Lord, I have been mistreated. I have had troubles, but I did not react to these conditions as I should have. It is my own sin that is the reason I am miserable today. I take full responsibility. Repentance begins where blame shifting ends. So this is the first step of true repentance is taking full responsibility the next thing we see David do out of the mess that he's made, out of all of his hurt, his heart aches not because of the consequences of his sin, wallowing in the thing that he's, the mess he's made. Rather, his repentance is because he realizes he has first and foremost sinned against God. That's why in verse four he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. One author said, godly Jews saw all sins primarily, first and foremost, as an offense to God. And this is how we should view our sin as well. When we grapple more and more with the reality that our sin and any and every sin that we have and will commit is what pinned Jesus to that cross, that is when you will begin to hate your sin. 
And regardless of how much pain and consequences it has caused you, what Jesus did on that cross for you is so much bigger and so much more offensive of a result of your sin. The pain that you have caused God in breaking his heart will matter so much more to you. And so the, first, the second counterfeit that we have in repentance is self-pity. And what I mean by that is, is the reason you're downtrodden because of the mess you've made? Because of the brokenness and the relationships that you find because of your sin? Because of the job that you've lost or the friendship that you lost? Or is it first and foremost because you've sinned against God and that sin that you committed is what pinned Jesus to that cross? Jesus has a right understanding of, of who first and foremost he has sinned against. And it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus. David's heart is breaking as he realizes what he has done. He has done to God who placed him as king, who saved him time and time again from King Saul and in battle. That's who he sinned against first. It's not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. He did. But his sin, the way that it affects him and his relationship with God is so much bigger. When we realize that our sin has broken God's heart, our sin is what separated us from him, but also that he did the most unthinkable thing in sending his son to make us right with him again, that is when we begin to change. And so the first two things we see David see is he takes full responsibility of his sin and he realizes how he has first and foremost broken God's heart. Lastly, within David's confession and repentance for forgiveness, we see that David understands God can completely do the work that, we're, that is required to grant forgiveness and relieve him of the guilt and shame that he is experiencing. He believes that God has the power to do it all and will do it all. In verses 10 through 12, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do you notice how he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation? He doesn't say restore to me salvation. Something a lot of Christians struggle with is every time I sin, am I in or am I out? Am I saved or am I not? David understands no matter how big the sin is, this is not, he, 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 is, he is God's. He is God's. But the sin, the result of this sin not only has come first and foremost and separated him and God, but it's stolen the joy of the goodness of God. And so what he asks God is to restore to him the joy of that salvation that God has brought him. Think about it. You cannot experience joy. Some of you may know this. You cannot experience joy when your heart is heavy with guilt and with shame. David understands that once he is freed from his sin through forgiveness, he will truly be free. The third counterfeit of repentance or way that we inaccurately live out repentance in an attempt, in a hope to relieve ourselves of guilt and shame is self-affliction. This is continuing to beat yourself up even after you've asked God for forgiveness. 
Tim Keller says this, finally, there is a kind of repentance that is excessive. The person is filled with loud and intense self-loathing, cries, and tears. Listeners feel compelled to them to tell them they aren't that bad and that they aren't that guilty. And that at every point of such a self-affliction, it tries to pressure others um, and even God not to accuse, but to excuse and pardon. The inner logic goes something like this. If I beat myself up enough, surely this will atone for my sin and no one will ask me for anything else. The use of self-hating contrition as a way to atone for one's sins rejects God's forgiveness as much as its opposite, a proud denial that you have done nothing wrong. They are both forms of self-righteousness. This was my sin. This was my struggle in repentance, was this one. Another subconscious belief when we walk a path of repentance that looks like self-affliction is the belief that what Jesus did on that cross atones for 90% of my sin, but I have to carry this shame and guilt a little longer. I have to carry this weight a little farther until I feel that I am ready to shed this guilt and this shame. And do you see how this tries to relieve us of shame and guilt, but it doesn't work? It actually makes guilt feel heavier. It actually makes the guilt feel more present and it completely dismisses the work of the cross. Self-affliction is a dangerous road. It is a lack of belief that what Jesus did up there was enough for you. When we walk the path of true repentance, it looks like verses 16 and 17. David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Can I show you a physical posture of the posture of David's heart in this moment? He's before God confessing his sin. Do you, do you see how this, this posture is not one of defense? It's not one of hiding. It's I understand. I take responsibility. My offering to you is a broken and contrite heart. He says he couldn't offer an offering because there literally wasn't something in the law that said, this is what you do when you have an affair, the lady gets pregnant and you kill her husband. There, it wasn't written. So he had to go to God himself to experience the relief from the shame and guilt that his sin had caused him. When he did this, he found forgiveness. He confessed his sin. He repented of what he had done and he was forgiven. Which leads us to our third point this morning. That there is one thing to receive when we confess our sin and repent of our sin. And that is to receive the joy, mercy, and love of God the Father and therefore rejoice in your forgiveness. That is your duty once you receive forgiveness. Let that sin go. Be done with it. Live in the freedom that God has given you because of what Jesus did. Accept the joy of your salvation returning to you as a result of your forgiveness. 
Corey Ten Boom once said this, God buries our sins in the deepest parts of the sea and then puts up a side that reads, no fishing. Don't go back. Don't wallow in the sin and the shame anymore. I dealt with it. There was only one thing that could be done to relieve you of it. And I did it. That's what he's saying. So don't go back. Live free. Actually live free. As I was finishing this message, and I'll have the band actually begin to come back up. As I was finishing this message and putting it together, I felt as though in some regard I was putting the cart before the horse. That for some of us, there was something that was missing that had yet to be addressed. Because I was drawing parallels between David's story and our story. But why do they end different? Why do we struggle with receiving God's forgiveness? Right? We look at his story. We draw the parallels. David sinned and we sin. David asked for forgiveness and we ask for forgiveness. His response is true repentance and therefore freedom. Our response sometimes is counterfeit repentance and we stayed locked in guilt and shame. And so what happened between forgiveness and repentance that went wrong for us? What went wrong? What are we missing? And so just let me read this word to you. There is one thing that all of these counterfeit repentant tactics have in common. This might sting for some of us. It might not be for you, but it might be. And so if it is, just receive it because God's working in you. There's one thing that all these counterfeit repentance tactics have in common. I believe that though some of us, for some of us, those who experience counterfeit repentance don't fully understand or believe God's forgiveness of your sin. It's kind of hard to rejoice when we don't believe our sin was truly dealt with, that it's truly been washed away in relation to blame shifting. There is no need to shift blame to rid yourself of guilt if you know, like David, guilt will be ridded of you when you ask for forgiveness and repent of your sin. In relation to self-pity, when you understand how much God loves you, you believe, and you believe that he sent his son for you, the individual, that Jesus went through all that he went through for you, and that he would have done it for every sin that you have ever made, your response will not be, oh, my the problems I've made in my life, your response will be, I have sinned against God. In relation to self-affliction, this was mine. When you understand you're forgiven, that you are truly forgiven, that you're free, that it's done, that sin is gone, a desire to keep bullying yourself over your sin will seem senseless. It doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? If I believed it was dealt with, why would I deal with that? Why would I put myself through that? And so for those of us who have lived through these counterfeit ways of repentance, I say, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. You are loved. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, was forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is your truth. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Friends, you are forgiven. 
What Christ did was enough. Don't rob God by living as if what Christ did on that cross wasn't enough. And don't rob yourself of the freedom that he wants to give you. Christ went to that cross for you so that God could offer you forgiveness and freedom. When Jesus died, he wasn't thinking in broad terms. Although these passages are covering of all people, because all people are offered this. He died for the individual. He died for you. And sometimes we get, we lose, we lose that truth and the ambiguity of everybody. And so to make this point clearer, to bring this point home that Christ died for you, that he thought of you up on that cross, C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus did not die for men, but he died for each man. If each man would have been the only man made, he would have done no less. If you were the only human to ever walk this earth and to ever sin, and even if it was only one time, he would have done it. He'd have done that same thing for you. That is your truth. The most beautiful thing of receiving God's forgiveness, of confessing sin and repenting and then rejoicing is they can all happen in a moment. You can walk out of here today without your guilt and your shame. And so as we begin to sing, I don't want you to stand. I want you to take a moment, spend some time confessing. If you feel so called physically before God, represent what is going on in your heart. Confess the sin you've done. Let him know. I realize I've sinned. Take full responsibility of what you've done. Don't shift it on anyone else. Choose to walk a different way by any means necessary. I'm going to walk in the opposite direction that this sin has put me through. And then believe that you're, you have been forgiven and leave that guilt and shame at the foot of the cross. And it is only then, I'm serious guys, it is only then that I want you to stand and rejoice and worship with us. Take time. For some of you, you might have done this this morning, so you're going to stand up because you are forgiven. Awesome. But for some of you, it's been a hot minute since you spent time with God. If it takes all of these songs to do that, do it. Don't stand up when the masses do. Get alone with God and spend time with him. Leave that guilt and shame here because he dealt with it. He, He doesn't want you in it anymore. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and rejoice because you have God's forgiveness. Take some time, just with God.